Hi, welcome to Clodicast. My name is Ajay Clody. This podcast aims to understand history, science, and politics with the help of experts. Today, we're joined with renowned seismologist Adam Pascale. Adam works with the Seismology Research Center located in Australia. Today, we're going to be exploring earthquakes, seismology, and what to do if you're trapped in an earthquake. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the show. Starting off, I'd like to ask, who is Adam Pascale and why seismology? It's not the career I planned. It's, uh, so I, I started working uh, at the Seismology Research Center after I graduated university. I studied um, computer science at uh, what, what was Philip Institute of Technology back then and became RMIT University. Uh, and then at the end of that course, I didn't really have a, a path forward. So I just got a summer job in the basement of the building at the university where this uh, weird little earthquake lab was. And, um, and yeah, I've been there ever since. So that it was 30 years ago. That's interesting. Knowing little about seismology, I would assume you'd do something like physics or geology before venturing into seismology. I studied computer science and there was an instrumentation stream, which sort of basically means uh, computer control of, of instruments. And in the end, that's where I've ended up. I've, I've gotten into uh, designing uh, the seismic instruments, so seismographs and, and uh, software. So having that background in computer science has actually, you know, come Beneficial. useful. Um, but uh, yeah, so a lot of our, our staff um, don't have traditional uh, geological backgrounds. Uh, some do, obviously, um, but we, yeah, we've got a, a mix of people working for us. From then to now, what do you think makes you get up in the morning? What motivates you on a daily basis to pursue seismology? For a long time, it was just a job. I was processing data and doing field work, and and eventually, I've I found that I really took a lot of joy from um, getting involved with the design of instruments and making them you know, user-friendly and, and that sort of thing. So designing is really uh, a passion now. And, and I'm fortunate to be in a position where I can uh, choose to do that within my job in, in developing new instruments and new software for analyzing earthquake data. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a really high motivation for me to keep involved. Obviously earthquakes are interesting when they happen and this week's been pretty cool. Uh, but um, yeah, that's, that's my motivation. And I have to ask, what did you think of the most recent earthquake in Melbourne, Australia? Pretty much standing exactly where I am now and on the upper floor of, uh, of our home. Uh, and that tends to amplify the, the shaking as well when you're further up in a building. So, yeah, it started shaking. I knew it immediately that uh, it was an earthquake. And, and I started counting the number of seconds until the strong shaking starts, which gives an indication a bit of how far away the earthquake was. So, yeah, pretty quickly, uh, I, I had an idea of roughly how far away the, the earthquake was. And I assumed, given that distance, it was going to be another Maui earthquake like we had in, in 2012. Uh, that was also felt all across Melbourne. But um, within a couple of minutes, I'd, I'd uh, gotten onto the computer and worked out exactly where it was and how big it was. And yeah, it's uh, yeah, pretty incredible. Now, you work at the Seismology Research Centre. Can you briefly explain what are the goals and aims of the centre and what you do there? So when I joined, as I mentioned, it was part of RMIT University. 
Right. Uh, and in 1998, um, the university sold us to a private organization where we continued doing what we were doing, which was traditional uh, earthquake observatory operations, so running a network of seismographs, but also doing uh, earthquake hazard evaluations, um, which is basically looking at a particular site and seeing what the, the chance of uh, an earthquake is for that area for design purposes, like for dams and other structures. So we were doing that within the university. And then once we were commercialized, uh, sort of a little bit more focus on the instrumentation side of things came about. So we started to really do more in our development work in that area. Um, and, and that's, yes, the three divisions of what we do now really are the, the earthquake network operation. So we have about 50 stations in our network that are sending us data throughout uh, Southeast Australia. Uh, so that's one part. The other part is that earthquake hazard evaluation, that consulting work that we do. Uh, and the other side is the instrument and software design and manufacturing. So we do that uh, here in Melbourne. Can you please expand for us what do private and government organizations, what value do they derive from seismology services, especially from the research center? Mainly from uh, emergency response. Uh, they, they've got emergency procedures that they need to follow after certain types of events, out of the fires or other emergencies. So earthquake is... Uh, is one aspect of that. So they have uh, uh, an emergency plan that they need to enact. And most of these, uh, the customers that use our services for an earthquake alarm service have large infrastructure that is vulnerable to earthquakes. So they need to know pretty quickly, um, you know, how it affected their structure. Not so much how big the earthquake was and where it was. That's interesting and you know, it goes along with it, but really how it affects their assets. And often they will have, lots of assets that are, um, need to be evaluated. So you, they all have limited, um, limited resources to be able to do that. So they need that prioritized as quickly as they can. So we work with them before an earthquake happens to say, these are where your assets are. These are what their relative vulnerabilities are. So if there was an earthquake of this size at this place, then that means this asset needs to be looked at first, and then this one, and this one, and this one. Now, in the case this week, it was such a large earthquake, everyone felt it, and they basically just jump into action straight away to get uh, you know, all of their major assets inspected as quickly as they can. But it's in the, the, when you have smaller events, which can be, uh, felt widely, but actually only really affecting, you know, a few of their assets, they won't know where to send the, the people, their, their resources. Um, so that's what we do. We try to help them focus their emergency response and give them exactly what they need, not just the latitude, longitude, depth and magnitude. It's this asset would have received this sort of intensity of shaking. So you need to take the action plans related to that. Um, so we try and do that. Yeah, within a couple of minutes of, of the earthquake happening. I know seismologists aren't, they're not, they don't have a structured routine. Can you paint us a picture of what you do on a daily or a weekly basis to get a better understanding of what seismologist does? There's certain aspects of what we do uh, are routine. So uh, on a weekly basis, we're processing data from all of our stations that we're um, getting data from so there's data streaming in from as i said dozens and dozens of stations so we've got uh majorly one data analyst going through most of it um, with a couple of backups as well um, we're locating every earthquake that we can see 
Uh, and because generally in Southeast Australia, we don't have uh, very many large events, we are often looking for very, very small events. And we have high density network so we can pick up very very small earthquakes less than magnitude one less than magnitude zero in some cases so because uh, it's a logarithmic scale but we can talk about that later if you want to get into that um so we're locating those earthquakes and then we're producing uh, a weekly map that we put on our social media so we've got uh, instagram facebook twitter and linkedin we put out maps every week um, of, of earthquake activity uh, yeah, Monday's one's going to be pretty uh, pretty intense <laughs> compared yeah. to most weeks. We, uh, yeah, this week we're going to have uh, hundreds and hundreds. So, um, so yeah, that's the routine part of our earthquake operations. The um, the other parts we're constantly developing new software and and hardware. So we're on our seventh generation of. Um, recording instrument the data logger that we develop is a seismograph a seismograph is a data logger combined with an earthquake sensor so we don't make the sensors ourselves we do make we design our own data loggers so that's uh, important because uh, seismic data loggers are not like most other ones they need to have a very wide dynamic range they can pick, pick up very small and very large things they need to run very quickly, you know, hundreds of samples per second, rather than just logging, you know, one sample every minute or 15 minutes, like some other data loggers do. Um, so it's a very specialized sort of thing, which is why we developed, we well, started developing these ourselves back in the uh, late seventies. Um, so yeah, we're on our seventh generation. We're working, that's in production at the moment, and we're developing our, our eighth generation at the moment. And we also develop software to go along with it. So data analysis software to you know, be able to actually locate the earthquake, to host the data, to pull it all in uh, and to be able to access it over the web. Okay, now we've covered a bit about seismology and what a seismologist does. Can we delve into briefly what an earthquake is in a nutshell? So an earthquake is basically rock breaking so what's happening dynamically around the world everyone i think knows nowadays about tectonic plates that make up the surface of the earth we in australia are within a tectonic plate we're in the middle of the australian plate the border of which goes through new zealand and then sort of bends around through uh, papua new guinea and indonesia um, so that's where two plates uh, are meeting so the australian plate and the Pacific plate meet together. Uh, and at those plate boundaries where two plates join, that's where you get a lot of uh, more frequent earthquake activity and much larger earthquakes more often. So because they're sort of rubbing past each other as they're moving. So there's a lot of movement, a lot of big earthquakes more often. Within the plate itself though, as it's being pushed around, stress is being built up within that plate. And that can sort of, you know, as you're compressing the plate, that can cause little fractures and faults within that plate. Uh, and occasionally they will break as well. So they can, the rock can only take a certain amount of stress uh, and different rocks in different areas take different amounts of stress and then they'll break. So the stronger the rock, I guess, uh, the more it can take. And then when it breaks, it breaks more severely as well. So um, that's how you get different magnitude earthquakes. You've, you've, when that energy releases, it depends on how much stress that rock has built up. Um, so that's the dynamics of what happens during an earthquake. That's that rock breaking. And then energy waves are released as the, when that break happens. 
Now, there are two major energy waves that come out. We call them P and S waves, primary and secondary waves. Primary waves travel faster than secondary waves, but the secondary waves are the ones that tend to be of larger amplitude and shaking horizontally, uh, which is the problem because uh, that's what buildings don't really like is being shaped, so they're shaken sideways. Yeah. Uh, they, they are usually primarily vertical because they're compressing as they're pushing along rather than waving as they're moving along like the S waves. So those uh, compressional waves that happen with the P wave, so you, you'll, they'll arrive first and then some number of seconds later, depending on how far away you are from the earthquake, the S waves will arrive. Um, and we use that, um, that time difference between the P and the S wave to actually work out where the earthquakes are. Um, it's just triangulation. Basically, if you have at least three stations uh, that have recorded the earthquake, you can work out where the earthquake is in 3D space. Similar to how police track people's cell phones between towers. It's, it's, it's a range thing. So you get range from three different places and then you can narrow it down to exactly where it is. And the more seismographs you have and the closer they are to the epicenter, the more accurate the location is going to be. Uh, and depth plays a, a huge role in that. So if you can have a seismograph very close to where the earthquake is, you get a real good idea of how deep the earthquake is. Um, and, you know, in this, this week's earthquake, we had stations within 50 kilometres um, of where that earthquake was because it's a fairly active area and we know when we put things in that area and we work out that the depth of that earthquake was 12 kilometers which is pretty standard sort of 10 to 12 kilometers is is not unusual for our part of the world um, and that's how we determine the, um, the the location and depth and magnitude of an earthquake is basically how much uh, shaking it, it generated is that related to how seismologists calculate the magnitude as well by the amount of waves? Yeah, so the, the uh, amplitude of shaking at the different distances, um, we then calculate basically how, okay, at, at 100 kilometers, it shook 10 millimeters per second. Uh, at this station, it, it, it was closer, it shook more. So we average, there's a, a formula to work out the local Richter magnitude. So everyone's heard of the Richter magnitude. It's not really used um scientifically these days but uh, we still use it ourselves to give a relative measure of the size of these earthquakes so we we estimate the richter magnitude using that formula for each of our seismograph stations average it out and then that's how we get a, a magnitude um, so more modern methods of calculating magnitude are called moment magnitude where they're working out fault plane areas and things like that's so a bit more difficult to understand but to be consistent we try and use the same sort of rough scale so even though this is a local this week's earthquake was local richter magnitude 5.8 the moment magnitude works out to 5.9 but they're pretty similar can we go over the types of equipment that seismologists use so the field equipment that we use is uh, the first part is the earthquake sensor. So this is uh, a, a device that has usually three components in it, measuring north-south motion, east-west motion, and up-down motion. So it's a triaxial seismometer, we call it. Um, so that produces an electrical signal, and we connect that to a data logger, which is the equipment that we develop uh, ourselves at the Seismology Research Center. So that data logger will collate that equipment, uh, that data rather, and uh, store it onto a memory card and optionally stream that data onto the internet 
to uh, to our observatory. So we usually will connect it to a 4G modem um, nowadays, uh, there, but you can also connect them to like other internet systems, satellite communication systems, whatever's available really. Um, so it will stream that data uh, remotely. To power those systems, you've got a battery and a solar panel usually because they're remote. We want to have our stations as far away from noise sources and population and traffic as possible. So that usually means we don't have any power. Um, so we're always running off battery power. So all of that equipment needs to be very low power consumption. Um, so we, we uh, make sure we design our equipment to, to operate that way. Um, so that's generally what's out in the field and that's what we put out uh, in the field this week for some aftershock monitoring of this event as well. We had some gear sent down from Geoscience Australia in Canberra, who's the, the national authority for, for earthquakes uh, in Australia. We went out there to install it for them because they've got travel restrictions due to COVID at the moment. So um, we're you know, cooperating well uh, and uh, to get all this data. Are we using any AI or machine learning technology to analyze or um, predict these patterns or seismic waves, or is majority of the analysis done by, by humans? It's still uh, very manual. Um, we have never had enough activity to really justify developing that um, the machine learning ourselves. It, it is out there in, in the world. People are doing it. They're doing pattern matching of events. Um, and that usually works well when you've got lots of events in the same place, like we're seeing now with all these aftershocks. Uh, it is very, very labor intensive to go through hundreds and hundreds of aftershocks and process each one. We're not usually in that situation. So I can see yeah. that the real benefit of doing <laughs> that at the moment, um, that we could just say, okay, this is what a Woods Point earthquake looks like. Go and find them all and, and match them up rather than us having to locate each one. That's becoming more and more common nowadays. So there's a lot of researchers out there that are doing it. A lot of the code is, is open source. It's just about you know how we integrate it into our software systems. And, and that's one of the, the things that we try and focus on is all of that technology is out there, all of that code's been developed. And what we try and do is put it into a package that is really easy for researchers and students to use. And then we haven't gotten to the point of, of integrating uh, that machine learning stuff into it yet, um, but it's certainly on the cards down the track. Now, diving a little bit into the history of earthquakes, has our understanding fundamentally changed in the last hundred years or has it been pretty much consistent of what we know and understand earthquakes to be? There's a, a lot of a lot of things have changed. And I mean, plate tectonics isn't uh, a, that old an idea, actually. It, the, people didn't really understand the, the way the earth was made up uh, for a long time. So that's really developed. In the 1960s, there was a real push for more uh, earthquake monitoring around the world. And that was really when things started to ramp up. A lot more uh, instrumentation was put out. Uh, and that's when we really started to learn about earthquakes, uh, particularly in Australia. We didn't have uh, very much in the way of, of seismographs until the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, and that's when we started learning about it here. Um, the general understanding really is, you know, the, the fundamentals are pretty well understood now as far as uh, you know, fault rupture mechanics and the different types of faults in different areas. Um, 
the the research that's going on nowadays is is focused around uh, looking at different areas and and also looking at different ways of monitoring things and trying to understand uh, things like um, slow slip events, which are things that don't the, the land moving without there being earthquakes. It's uh, like deformation of land. So look, there's a lot of research going on and we still have so much to learn. I mean, the, the ultimate goal is to find the, you know, those those pointers that are indicating that there's imminent seismic activity, but at the moment there's absolutely no way to predict earthquakes. I know that predicting earthquakes is not possible. Do you think in the future, if we understand all of the variables and the parameters involved with um, the seismic waves or determining what's happening under the earth, do you think we'll be able to predict earthquakes in the future? I think that that, that is the key to it in that we don't know how to monitor. We don't know the parameter that we mm. need to monitor to be able to determine this. And one of the things is, as we were talking about earlier, there is this stress buildup in the rock. We can't measure that stress buildup. This is the, the, the issue. I mean, this is the, the, these rocks where this, they're breaking is kilometers down below the surface. We can't get to them. We can't mm. monitor them directly. If there was a way to monitor that stress, then we would start to be able to uh, determine, okay, stress is increasing and in this area that tends to release at this level so we'd be able to work there it's just that, that technology is not there i mean people are working on it they're trying to work out uh, i've heard of things where they're measuring uh, things in the atmosphere above known faults and seeing spikes in certain parameters uh, before earthquakes um, so yeah, it, I, that's the trick. It's really finding what's that parameter that we need to monitor that's going to give us that last piece of the puzzle to be able to put it all together. Um, so it, definitely, I think that's the goal. Moving on to the human aspect of earthquakes, the human side, do you think that the last couple hundred years due to the Industrial Revolution and humans doing a lot of activity above and under the Earth's surface, do you think we're contributing much to earthquakes or are we not really making a dent in the grand scheme of things? It's, um, I mean, certain, certainly humans contribute to seismic activity, uh, not on a tectonic level as far as affecting the plates and how they move, but certainly on a local scale by doing things like uh, fluid injection, we, we know that that can induce uh, earthquakes or trigger earthquakes, um, whether you know, these, whether these areas would have had earthquakes uh, without that activity, that's, you know, it's a, it's a fair point is that they, those areas wouldn't have been triggered into having those events um, had we not been sort of pushing stuff in or taking stuff out. Um, so it is bringing on events, it is triggering events um, that may have not happened or may have happened a long time in the future. So there is uh, an effect. Climate, not so much. I mean, all of the tectonic stuff, again, is happening kilometres below the surface of it. What we're doing up here is very superficial. And you know, there's been many cases of, of um, particularly with fracking, uh, about inducing events. Mm. And the trick there really is to monitor it and, uh, and regulate it. And 
you know, put, putting in instrumentation in there to say, okay, we, we are seeing little fractures and fractures are required. They're trying to open up, you know, fractures in the earth to be able for the, for the um, resources to be extracted or injected. Um, and to a certain level, that's going to be okay. But once it gets out of control, that's when it needs to be stopped. Uh, and that's, you know, so it's manageable, um, but there are risks, obviously. Do you think humans in the last couple hundred years doing excavations or mining has affected the frequency rates of earthquakes? Or do you think that we just have better equipment to understand what's happening and catch these earthquakes happening? That's why we're seeing a higher frequency. Can you uh, briefly elaborate on that? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of factors that are contributing to our uh, improved levels of information. And I think that that's the key. Um, overall, earthquake activity is, is no different to what it's always been. I mean, it's been happening for millions of years before we got here and it will yeah. continue to. So the, the, the overall rate of things is not really changing. What really has changed is our ability to detect them using better instrumentation and are also our, in recent years, our ability to communicate that information to the public. So that it, it appears to the public there's, there's a lot more stuff happening. There's more earthquakes, there's more tsunamis, there's, there's more stuff happening. It's not really, it's just you're hearing about it more because we're able to communicate it more nowadays and more quickly. Um, when I started 30 years ago, getting the word out was was really difficult. Now I can just tweet and it's it's there and people are consuming it immediately. So um, it's, yeah, I think those are the factors that give the perception that um, that earthquakes are more frequent than, but they're not. They're, they're pretty much the same rate as always. And, and there is a, you know, you look at the, the rate of magnitude ones and twos and threes, and it's, it just hasn't really changed since we've started monitoring and we suspect ever. And just trying to understand earthquake destruction, do you believe that population density and our ability to build larger and bigger buildings and um, maybe even structurally, we haven't taken account of earthquakes in general. That's that's causing most of our damage and destruction from earthquakes. Or do you think there's um, earthquakes are just naturally that dangerous? The, definitely, the um, the engineering around the structures is the biggest uh, factor in, in in damage from an earthquake. Most cities have been around for a long time, a lot uh, longer than there have been building regulations that considered earthquake. Uh, and, and that's why we've got issues with, you know, distant earthquakes. Like we had this Melbourne one was, you know, we're 130 odd kilometers from the epicenter uh, and there was damage in, in the city. And, and the reason for it is that, you know, that there was one particular building where the masonry fell off the building and it's because it's unreinforced masonry. It's not tied to the structure. And this was not a common thing back when those buildings were made. They, were, they didn't consider that you could have an earthquake that will shake this building and that this wall will fall away. Um, and, you know, in those countries where there's, they have devastating earthquakes in Turkey and, and uh, other places where the, the infrastructure is very, very old and, and hasn't been engineered at all in some cases. And that's where you've got widespread, uh, you know, destruction and unfortunately deaths and injuries due to it it, it really um the the effect of the earthquake the earthquake doesn't 
kill people. It's usually the buildings and, and mm. the infrastructure that comes down around it. And, and that's the key. It's uh, the age of the city, modern cities with all modern construction, you know, they, they're pretty resilient, um, but there's not many of those. So yeah. uh, it's always going to be an issue. So in theory, you'd assume that we'd be able to engineer ourselves to be more earthquake resistant and to prevent destruction and damage. Absolutely. And, and you know, in Japan, we, you know, about the, the construction of their buildings with lightweight timber frames and, and, you know, in some cases, paper paper walls because they are lightweight, flexible. They, they move in earthquakes because they've had, you know, they've engineered those to survive earthquakes because they know they've had them for, for thousands of years and, and they engineered their structures accordingly. Um, in Western countries, that hasn't necessarily been the case because I guess we don't know, we don't have the history of um, seismicity in those countries. Uh, so even in places like in New Zealand, you know, we had the, the Christchurch earthquake and it was devastating. And again, it was the, the engineering of that infrastructure. When they were built, they didn't consider earthquake, but there's a lot of retrofitting going on in that country of particularly in Wellington, where they've, they know that uh, there's potential for very large earthquakes that they go and uh, retrofit base isolation um, things like basically putting the building on shock absorbers. Um, and you can do that to protect these heritage buildings that were that, that can't be changed in themselves to be more earthquake resistant, trying to isolate them from, from the ground motion. Whereas new buildings, you can actually make the frames so that they are, uh, they, they can twist and, and be flexible, but also rigid enough to survive uh, an earthquake. So it's all about engineering. Taking it outside of earth, do seismic activity or earthquakes happen uh, outside of Earth in other planetary bodies? Absolutely. So uh, the first place that um, seismometers were placed outside of Earth was the moon. So we have recorded moonquakes since the uh, since the 60s. Um, and recently, they've uh, just just last year, uh, the first um, Mars quakes were were detected. So a special uh deployment was was made in site was the was the um the lander and that had a, a seismometer on it so it was the first uh seismograph on on mars and it has recorded um so the idea of putting a seismometer on mars not just to record mars quakes but to understand the structure of the internals of mars which is what we have learned all that we know about the internal structure of Earth has come from monitoring earthquakes. It's, we look at how energy waves travel through the Earth, and that's how we've gotten that picture of, of what's happening inside the Earth. And that's what we're trying to do in Mars. And there's only the one station there now, but in future, obviously, more stations, and you'll get a better idea of what the structure is and the dynamics of that planet. And there are plans to deploy seismographs to to other planets, to uh, Titan, I believe, um, is is one of the future targets. All very exciting. All right, question on everybody's mind: What to do if you are stuck in an earthquake? Uh, there's a lot of old myths, and we just really need to put those to bed. I'll tell you that. The thing that we say now, there's a phrase of drop, cover, and hold on. Uh, and the idea is to get down, get underneath something solid like a table and hold on because the strong shaking can actually move 
that, that table. So it might move from above you. So you want to hold on to it while they're strong shaking. And the reason that we're just taking cover is because most injuries and deaths are caused by falling debris during an earthquake. As we're talking about, it's the buildings that are killing people. Um, so you need to protect yourself from that. Now, in some cases, you know, if you're in a, a building that will collapse, there's no sort of avoiding it. Um, but getting into a position where you can protect yourself is, is important. Running out of the building is not a good idea. That is the instinct people were doing that. The issue is we touched on earlier was that you've got walls that can fall out into the street. So you can run out onto the street and then you can have bits of the building falling on top of you. Whereas if you stayed inside, you'd be fine. There's that traditional idea that getting into a doorway is going to help. Uh, I think that's a bit of a myth because I think, uh, there, I think there was a photo at one point of a doorway being left uh, of, a, of a, an earthquake affected building. So they, somebody said, oh, well, doorways are strong, so we should go and stand <laughs> in door. It's not a good place to be. But yeah, drop cover and hold on. If you're out in an open field, are there any risks from earthquakes? Generally, it's, it's an open field is a good place to be because you, you're you're uh, you're clear of any any dangers. Uh, very rarely does the earth open up, and and uh, you know there's, so there's not there's that also that trope that is not really it's a very Hollywood sort of thing to do. I've seen a lot of videos where if you're driving a car and you're on a bridge and then the bridge collapses, what would you recommend? for somebody who's driving in that situation and they experience an earthquake? Recommendation is to, is to pull over and, and stop because you don't know what's going to happen with that bridge and you can't see if the bridge has collapsed um, mm -hmm. if you're driving along. So you, 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 if a section of the bridge is gone, you can't stop quickly enough. So uh, the recommendation is that if, if you are noticing an earthquake while you're driving, which is actually quite difficult often, mm -hmm. um, to just yeah, stop the vehicle and, and stay where you are. Stay in the vehicle or get out of the vehicle? Inside the vehicle, again, the it's, vehicle. it's affording you some protection if there is some structures of that, uh, you know, of wherever you are um, going to collapse, then you, you've got a, a better chance of being protected uh, while you're in your vehicle. Final question. What advice would you give to people who are interested in seismology, the younger generation? Um, where can they learn more? Yeah, there's no seismology courses in Australia uh, at the moment. Um, the nearest sort of things are in, in geology and engineering, um, civil engineering, those sorts of things, sort of understanding the, the dynamics of the earth and structures. Um, getting into that's where a lot of people are working at the moment and studying in universities. So, you know, obviously physics um, and maths play a big part in, in what we do. So if you're studying those areas, that's that's very important. But there's a lot of aspects of, of uh, what we do. I mean, as, as we said at the start, I, I came from a computer science background doing programming. Um, and there's aspects of a lot of different disciplines within seismology, you know, for what I do, there's, I, I, I do art and, and, and video production and lots of other things. So yeah. you can find a niche of what you want to do, but really the, the important thing is to, if you're really interested in doing something, you know, spend some extra time uh, teaching yourself uh, some of those aspects out, outside of, um, your normal sort of study thing. Don't necessarily just rely on what's being taught to you um, to, to give you the full picture, you know, do your own investigation, do your citizen science and, and be passionate about it and you know, keep working towards it and you'll get there. Lastly, where can we find out more about 
Adam Pascale and the Seismology Research Center. SRC.com.au. Uh, during the earthquake, that tends to go down because everyone <laughs> tries to get it, which is why we've also moved to social media to get the uh, the word out during events. There's links to all of our social media on, on our website. So there's Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and whatnot. Uh, and YouTube, we have a YouTube channel where we occasionally put out a bit of information. Um, so yeah, SRC.com.au is the, the place to go. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's probably the best central resource for it. Yeah. Well, Adam, thank you so much for today. Thank you for taking time out to entertain me and our audience as well. Um, hopefully we'll see you in the next earthquake. My pleasure. Hi, before you leave, if you have any ideas to explore or people to speak to, please reach out to me at Audrey Clody on Twitter or at Clody Cast on YouTube. Hope to see you in the next podcast.